Children, um, do you know anybody? Maybe it's one of your brothers or sisters. Maybe it's your mom or your dad. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody here at church. But do you know anybody who you have observed is really good about doing what he says he will do? In other words, if somebody says, I'll get you, I don't know, a Kleenex. So they run to get a Kleenex and they bring you a Kleenex. Or um, I'll, uh, I'll walk with you down to the store. You probably shouldn't do that alone anyway. But anyway, something like that and the person does. Or I'm going to give you a spanking if you do that. And sure enough, mom and dad follow through. And, uh, and, they, and they keep their word. Do you know people in your life that are pretty good at keeping their word? You know, God wants all of us to be really good at keeping our word. We're required as Christians to tell the truth, and part of telling the truth is following through on what we say we will do. When you follow through, or somebody you know follows through on what you what they say they will do, that's one of the words to describe that as being faithful. Being faithful at keeping your word. At doing what you say you will do. Now sadly, there are a lot of people in the world who often don't keep their word. Who often don't follow through on doing what they say they will do. And that's evil in God's sight. That's being unfaithful when you don't keep your word. Well, this passage is about two... trying to figure out how to say this. This passage is about somebody who doesn't keep their word, and it's also about somebody who does keep his word. In other words, it contrasts, it shows the stark difference between somebody who is very faithful, in fact, who's always faithful, and somebody who is very, very unfaithful to his promises, versus somebody who is faithful to his promises. You can probably guess the one who's faithful is God. And the the one who's unfaithful is one of Judah's kings, a descendant of King David, good King David, but one of his descendants who was a really bad king. His name is Joram, Jehoram, rather. Actually, over in Kings, it describes him or calls him Joram. Here it's Jehoram in the Chronicles. I mean the same thing. So we're going to look at these, one who is faithful and one who is unfaithful, but we're going to take it in reverse order. We're going to look at the unfaithful one first, and our faithful God at the uh, end of, toward the end of the sermon. But first, a little background here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Chapters 21 through 24, so the next four chapters, yeah, four, uh, the next four chapters, uh, cover the reigns of four people, uh, excuse me, of the next four people to sit on the throne of the kingdom of Judah after Jehoshaphat. So the next four people to sit on the throne are covered in these next four chapters. Notice, by the way, I didn't say the next four monarchs to sit on the throne 
of Judah or the throne of David over the kingdom of Judah. I didn't say monarchs because one of these individuals is a woman named Athaliah, and she was not a legitimate monarch in Judah. She was a, what's called a, usurp, a usurper um, and uh, a, an illegitimate ruler, although she was the ruler, but she was not a legitimate one during her reign. There were three other individuals as well, in addition to Athaliah, that are covered by this, these next four chapters. The first one that we're dealing with today is Jehoram. The next one is his son, Azariah, uh, excuse me, Ahaziah, or as we read, Jehoahaz. Those are uh, two names for the same guy, different names. That happens pretty regularly in scripture. And the third one, uh, in addition to uh, Athaliah, is Joash. He's going to come, I believe, in chapter 24, as I recall. Athaliah, she inhabits the royal residence, we'll say, between the reigns of Ahaziah, Jehoahaz, and Joash. So we're going to get to her in a few weeks, Lord willing. Um, which will be unpleasant, by the way. Uh, <laughs> again, unpleasantness as we look at these wretched people. But uh, the material contained in chapters 21 to 24 clearly possesses a central theme. And you may have already guessed it. But the central theme of these four chapters covering these four monarchs, or four inhabitants of the throne, I should say, are this. The theme is the increasing moral and spiritual corruption and decay experienced by the kingdom of Judah as a result of its interactions and alliances with the northern kingdom of Israel and its apostate rulers. Um, bad company corrupts good morals, we read in the New Testament, and that's what goes on here. So, brace yourselves. The chronicler um, clearly intended for this most depressing section of his work to serve as a warning to the readers that he was writing to. Remember, he's writing in the post-exilic period, after the people that were exiled in the Babylon have returned, um, after the decree of Cyrus, uh, returned to the promised land, to Israel. Uh, and this is uh, during that period, or shortly after, the, uh, uh, there were three different returns. So uh, it was in the process of that return period that Chronicler, uh, the Chronicler was writing. And he was writing to those people who had returned or uh, were about to return. And he is writing here, uh, in this these four chapters in particular, to warn them of the dangers of compromising their fidelity to the Lord of the Covenant by associating with apostate Jews. By having close dealings with apostate Jews. And the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Chronicler, as he does through all the scriptures, clearly intends now uh, for this same sobering material that we're going to be looking at to serve as a warning to us of the same danger of associating with, in a close and intimate way, with apostate Christians. Two points. You already figured that out. First, we're going to look at the stunning faithlessness of David's royal descendant. 
And then we're going to conclude our time by looking at the stunning faithfulness of David's covenant Lord. But first, the stunning faithlessness or infidelity of David's royal descendant. Again, talking about Jehoram. He uh, began to reign in the year uh, 853, approximately right around 853 B.C., before Christ, and uh, told, we're told here he reigned eight years. He was the son of a good king. Not a perfect king, as we've seen, but a good king. Uh, a godly king, by and large, with whom the Lord was largely pleased. Jehoshaphat the previous uh, inhabitant of David's throne in Judah. He was also the grandson of another pretty good king, Asa, Jehoshaphat's father and predecessor. And so Jehoram um, is a man who is also, like his grandfather and his father, a man who is in covenant with Yahweh, with the Lord, the God of Israel. He was in covenant with the Lord because he was a party to the Davidic covenant by virtue of the fact that he was one of David's descendants, one of his um, royal biological descendants. And thus, by virtue of that fact, he was in covenant with God, with David's God, at least outwardly and legally. However, it is very obvious from both the king's account and particularly the chronicler's account of his life, uh, that uh, Jehoram was never inwardly, or as I sometimes say, vitally in covenant with Yahweh. He was what you might call a classic covenant breaker, rather than a covenant keeper, which is what a believer is, by the way, is a covenant keeper. He was a classic covenant breaker. He was a reprobate man. So we're going to look at some of the details of his wickedness in the next few moments. The first thing um, that opens up even before it tells us about, um, even before the chronicler tells us about how many years he, which is usually the way he opens uh, a description of somebody's reign with a description of how many years how old he was when he became king and how long he reigned. That does occur, but it occurs in verse 5. But before he even gets to that, he says immediately that uh, one, of the, one of the horrible things that this man did is he slew all his brothers that were alive at that point in time. Killed them all. Thereby, um, as shortly after he ascended from the throne, he did this, thereby showing off his treacherous and bloodthirsty side. He was a man that had no problems taking blood, even the blood of his own family members, and in fact brothers. He undoubtedly committed such fratricide to ensure that none of his brothers ever had the opportunity to undermine his rule, let alone overthrow him as king. He just removed all the uh, possible aspirants to the throne from the scene by killing them. Horribly evil thing to do, but it wasn't the only evil thing that Jehoram did. In addition to slaying his six brothers in cold blood, uh, we number we know the number six from verse two that I read. Uh, he also murdered not just them, but he also murdered some of the officials whom his father Jehoshaphat had appointed to assist 
him, his father, in his governance of the kingdom. Uh, we read that at the end of verse 4. So it wasn't just his brothers, but it was also some of the rulers of Israel. Now remember, this is Judah we're in. This is, this is not the northern kingdom of Israel, but this is the southern kingdom of Judah. The chronicler probably refers to them as rulers of Israel. And oh, by the way, he refers to Jehoshaphat back in verse 2 as king of Israel also. Kind of weird, because it's Judah we're talking about. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. He wasn't the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. At least not practically speaking, he wasn't. But... The chronicler probably does this here in this account. There are a few other places, I believe, in the in the uh, chronicles or, or kings where he does this, where the writers do this. And they refer to them as leaders of Israel rather than Judah because the chronicler, and perhaps the author of Kings does this as well, in which case he would also, this would apply to him, he views Judah as the rightful successor and continuation of the united monarchy of Israel over which David and Solomon presided before the, before the twelve tribes broke into two halves. And so Jehoshaphat is the legitimate king of all twelve tribes, even though he only has effective rule over two of the tribes. And again, Judah and its king are the legitimate God-appointed rulers of all 12 tribes, even though the 10 northern tribes don't recognize him, and he has no effective control up there. That's probably the reason for the occasional sprinkling of the moniker Israel to describe Judah's people or uh, Judah's kings or officials, as we read in verse 4. So he killed some of the officials that had been handed down, I suppose, from, uh, probably, from Jehoshaphat, his dad. Probably, whoever he felt threatened by took his life. In addition to these crimes already mentioned, the chronicler tells us in verse 6 that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, of the northern kingdom of Israel. To say that somebody walked in the ways of the kings of the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was to say it was not a compliment is an enormous understatement. If you walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, that was a huge um, um, criticism of you. Because, of course, to a man, the rulers of the north were wicked in God's sight, particularly because of their support for and promotion of syncretistic worship that that blended the worship of Yahweh with the worship of the peoples around them and even uh, the, Can- the Canaanites whom they dispossessed. Uh, such worship highly offended God, and most all the kings of the north were promoters of this kind of syncretistic worship. And um, so by comparing Jehoram to the kings of the north of Israel, the Holy Spirit is indicating to us something of the depths of his own depravity and infidelity toward God, this particular Judahite king. And the flagrancy of his apostasy is further cemented yet for his, for his reader by what the chronicler mentions next about him. Not only did he act like the kings of the north, but Oh, he married 
the daughter of one of the most evil idol worshippers of that northern kingdom and his lovely bride Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah, was his wife. A woman whom we will soon learn in subsequent chapters was every bit as unholy and wicked as her demon-worshipping parents were. They worshipped idols, and every idol has a demon behind it. Other places in Scripture make that point. So we can call them demon-worshippers. And Athaliah was just as wicked. And Jehoram, a descendant of David, chose to marry this woman vile as she was, with parents whom she, who produced her. And he knew who they were, and what they were like, and what they had done. Yet he married her anyway. More than this, this man, we are told in verse 11 of our text, built more high places in the mountains of Judah than were already found there, Um, as placed there by preceding monarchs, including uh, some of the good monarchs uh, who were apparently giving in to pressure to build high places so people didn't have to come to Judah to worship. uh, uh, Jerusalem, rather, to the temple. And But this guy um, uh, enthusiastically builds more high places for the people of his land to go to worship at. And They often weren't worshipping Jehovah, Yahweh. They were worshipping the wicked gods of the nations around them, or the Baals. So, and these high places, again, they they were designated for worship, high places were, that he built, but they were places that were designated for worship, places which the Lord himself had not approved of for worship. And folks, Scripture makes it clear that if Yahweh does not approve of something concerning his worship, he vigorously disapproves of it. There's no middle ground when it comes to the way the Lord wishes to be worshipped. We are to worship him. This is the regulative principle of worship that we find in Deuteronomy 12 and in the Second Commandment and and numerous other places. That God disapproves of worship that is not conducted the way he instructs us to conduct our worship, including the place. Now, in the Old Testament, there was only one place. Uh, during Israel's history, there was only one place. That no longer applies uh, in the New Covenant age. But, uh, but yet, it has to do with worship, and so the principle still applies. Um, and God highly disapproved of these high places, Think of Nadab and Abihu and their creative worship and what happened to them. Think of King Uzzah, who we're going to get to here, Uzziah rather, we're going to get to in a few chapters, his decision to enter the temple himself uh, to burn incense on the altar of incense rather than uh, having the priests do it for him. Became white as snow with leprosy. Judgment of God for um, disobeying God's orders regarding how he was to be worshipped through priests bringing sacrifices. Well, as a consequence of Jehoram's facilitation of the pagan worship practices that he, uh, by his building of high places, we read in verse 11, I'll read the whole verse now, uh, Moreover, he made high places 
in the mountains of Judah and and the implication here is that because he made high places in the mountains of Judah, by doing so, it says he caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot and led Judah astray. And later, in the later in the uh, rebuke that comes from the Lord through the uh, letter that Elijah wrote, uh, it says he not only caused the um, inhabitants of Judah to play the harlot, but also, uh, let's see. The inhabitants of, oh, never mind, never mind, forget what I was going to say. Anyway, he caused them to play the harlot and led, led them astray. Um, by the way, the, the phrase to play the harlot literally can be translated, he seduced them into religious fornication. Pretty, pretty uh, unnerving language, but it is that graphic. God is our husband. The church is his bride. When we, when we um, are wayward spiritually, either collectively or individually, uh, it is a tantamount to spiritual adultery. And phrases like this make that abundantly clear. And this man was an adulterous idolater. And I'm saying the same thing by using those two words, speaking of the same wickedness and sin. He seduced the people under his uh, under his authority, uh, the subjects of his land. He seduced them uh, into playing uh, uh, with uh, uh, paganism and defying God and uh, being unfaithful to the Lord. Extremely horrible what he did. Because he didn't just offend God personally, but he caused untold numbers of his, in, his people, whom he was supposed to be a spiritual leader of, to engage in this uh, wicked um, worship of demons, in effect, that he himself was a part of. There's, this is instructive, folks. This is instructive for those of us who are leaders, leaders in the church, leaders in our households, leaders in our community. Um, When we lead, if we lead poorly, other people are adversely affected by that. And it brings greater judgment upon us if we don't behave uh, properly, if we don't uh, act to the best of our abilities as uh, faithful servants of the Lord. Uh, and so sin is particularly, um, has particularly negative consequences when leaders, and this includes you know, both parents, not just the father, but also mother as well, it includes, by the way, even like older siblings, who, who are influencing and have an impact on younger, younger siblings and who engage in sinful practices can lead their younger siblings astray. If you're in a position of leadership, you have responsibility before God and you will, you will be held accountable for irresponsibly leading somebody in your life that you might be in charge of or have an influence over. 
And that is particularly bad when it comes to leading somebody away from the Lord spiritually, which is what Jehoram did by his actions. He led people, uh, many people who were his subjects further astray spiritually. The Chronicler's and the Holy Spirit's assessment of Jehoram is rather aptly summed up at the end of verse 6, where he says basically just, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there were grave consequences for this evil, this infidelity on uh, the king of Judah's part. Because of his covenant infidelity, there are five things listed here that I'm going to tick off for you. First, the Edomites to the east and south of Israel who had previously been subjugated under Israel, uh, under uh, uh, Judah's rule and the rule of Judah's kings, uh, successfully revolted against Jehoram, the Judite king. And so too, by the way, not just did the Edomites, but so too did the people of Libna, another, another um, tribal peoples uh, in, the, uh, in the vicinity. And the reason why these two uh, previously subjugated people were successfully rebelled and threw off the shackles of Jehoram is explicitly stated by the chronicler there in verse 10, at the end of verse 10. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time against his rule. And notice, because. This happened because he, Jehoram, had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. This was a judgment upon this man and upon his kingdom for his wickedness, his treacherous uh, rebellion against the Lord and refusal to worship and serve him. And this should not have been a surprise to anyone. I suspect it was. But it shouldn't have been a surprise, should it? To anybody who lived in that day, who saw this unfold before them after after uh, a period of time of... Uh, uh, Jehoram's wicked rule and all the things that he did, they should have gone, this makes perfect sense that the Edomites would invade us and the people uh, or the, would, uh, would rebel and we, we'd lose this. Um, you think of the uh, Davidic covenant that uh, Jehoram was party to, David and all of his descendants, in 2 Samuel verses 7, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 14, in the midst of that um, unpacking of the Davidic covenant, we read there, when your days, this is the Lord speaking to David now, when your and his sons, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, that can also be plural, descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And notice this part. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men, with the strokes of the sons of men. That's what's going on as uh, Libna and Edom are throwing off the yoke of Jehoram's rule. A second consequence of his own um, covenant infidelity is that God declares to him that he is going to, and this is in verse 14 now, strike Jehoram's subjects, his sons, his wives, and all his possessions. 
God's going to strike all those things. And he's going to smite him, he promises to do so in verse 15. He's going to smite him with a severe um, intestinal disease, which is going to cause his bowels to come out of his body. So he makes that promise. This is what I'm going to do to you because of your behavior. Thirdly, the kingdom of Judah is attacked by the Philistines from the west and also from the Arabs from the east. They're invaded by both of these people groups, these nations, who proceed to plunder the king's palace and take away all his possessions that were of any value. And they also carried away his sons and his wives into their respective lands. Only one son was left, whom we've already mentioned is Ahaziah, who's going to be the next king, otherwise known uh, otherwise known as Jehoahaz. And all this plundering by the Arabs and uh, this invasion by the Arabs and the Philistines is in fulfillment of the promise that he had previously made to him through the prophet Elijah in that letter that came to him from Elijah that we read of in verses 12 through 15. A fourth thing that uh, happened to him as a consequence of his <clears throat> apostasy is God smote him personally, <clears throat> excuse me, with that incurable disease. He didn't actually, he didn't just promise it, he followed through. God's faithful to his threatenings. And he followed through and he gave him this incurable bowel disease from which he slowly and painfully died. We'll read it, let's read it. 12, uh, 18 and 19. So after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. Now it came about in the course of time at the end of two years that his bowels came out because of his sickness and he died. In great pain. And then the last little um, uh, way in which the Lord, that no, wasn't little, which the way in which the Lord uh, uh, punished him for his covenant infidelity and his apostasy is he didn't allow him to be buried with his fathers, the kings of uh, the, uh, the godly kings, his father and his grandfather, as we read of there uh, in verse. Um, Verse 20, and we read that none of his subjects mourned his passing. He died with no one's regret. Nobody cared. Because he was just that wicked and vile a person. Stunning unfaithfulness of a descendant of David. But this passage also speaks of the stunning faithfulness of David's covenant Lord. And that's in verses 6 and 7. Where we see the incredible forbearance, forbearing response of God to Jehoram's blatant infidelity. God forbears. Though Jehoram was... Ahab's son-in-law, not his biological son, Jehoram was a perfect fit in the household of Ahab nonetheless. He could go, if you will, toe-to-toe with his in-laws when it came to the degree of evil and wickedness of which he was capable. He was just as idolatrous, just as murderous, just as conniving, just as corrupting, just as treacherous as his dear in-laws. But, in spite of his diabolic heart and diabolic behavior, the Lord 
held off from giving him what he so richly deserved, and that was a speedy departure from this world and trip to hell. But he forbore in his dealings with Jehoram long enough to preserve the line of David coming through Jehoram. He forbore. Let's read it. Starting in verse 6. And he walked, again Jehoram, walked in the ways of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab did, for Ahab's daughter was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house, the dynasty of David. Because, why? Of the covenant which he made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. It was on account of the covenant that the Lord forbore in his dealings with this wretched man. By the way, before I talk more about that, God is incredibly forbearing. He's forbearing even with his enemies because the sun to rise and set on them and the rain to fall on them before he takes them to their final destination. So he forbears with respect to them. But he also forbears, folks, with respect to his people. The Lord will not keep his anger always. Remember that uh, from Psalm 103 that I read? He will not strive with us forever. He does strive with us. As a father, uh, he loves us always, but he disciplines us. And he is displeased when we defy him. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, disown us. He doesn't ever hate us. He loves us. But he, he is displeased when we sin. And, but he is forbearing in his dealings with us when we go astray. That is never an excuse to go astray. I hope you all know that. But we've all gone astray. And we need that forbearance. And you need to rejoice that it's there. And why? Because of the covenant. And the one who made it. That's why. He made a covenant with David and his descendants. And that's the first reason that he forbore in his dealings with um, Jehoram. And the second reason, which is related to it, is his utter resolve to keep those covenant promises that he made. Specifically, what was his promise? He made a promise to give David and his descendants a lamp forever. That's the wording that we see there at the end of verse 7. That promise to give him, David, and his descendants a lamp forever was essentially a promise to never extinguish David's royal dynasty, his line. Again, back in Second Samuel chapter 7, we read in verses 15 and 16, But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. This is the descendant of David, descendants. My loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. 
Your throne shall be established forever. And that promise was in the Lord's mind, if I can put it that way, here at this point in time uh, in his dealings with uh, Jehoram. He wasn't going to take back that promise. He was going to make sure that through Jehoram, that line would continue until Jesus arrived. And it did. And the Davidic covenant has, um, and the Davidic ruler is still ruling right now. Forever will do so. And is sitting on his throne now. It was the infinite faithfulness of Yahweh himself that compelled him to refrain from prematurely snuffing out Jehoram's wretched life. As Paul notes in 1 Timothy, if we are faithless, and aren't we often, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The Lord will faithfully fulfill each and every promise that he has made to you in his word. When you read his word, claim those promises. Now, it may seem sometimes like he's not going to, but that's just a mirage. He fulfills, he will fulfill, if he hasn't yet, his promises. Oh, and yes, non-Christian, his threatenings as well. If there's a non-Christian here, somebody who's not trusting in Jesus alone right now as your only hope of being forgiven by God and, and being reconciled to him and going to heaven, then God's wrath, you're exposed to God's wrath, his judicial anger at your rebellion against him, which has not been forgiven. And he promises that you will be eternally punished for that rebellion against him, which is what sin is, unless you flee to Christ. Jesus, in faith, trusting only in him, not your baptism, not your church membership, your standing in the community, whatever. But Jesus, and the right Jesus, the Jesus who is 100% God and 100% man and the only hope of sinners. You've got to trust in him. Or he will fulfill his threat to punish you eternally in hell, which we all deserve, yours truly included, perhaps more so than you. But we're all going to get that if... Jesus doesn't take our God's wrath for us by us trusting in him. Speaking of Jesus, we know from elsewhere in the scripture that Yahweh didn't ultimately make the Davidic covenant or, for that matter, any of the other Old Testament administrations of the covenant of grace. He didn't ultimately make those covenant administrations with the sinful men after whom most of these covenant administrations were named. He didn't make it after Moses, after Abraham. Uh, Make it with Moses, with Abraham, with David, ultimately, with Noah, with Adam. He made those gracious covenants, ultimately, with Christ. And that is why We can believe everything that we read that God has written um, because Jesus purchased the fulfillment of everything. 
It's a gift. He's a gift to you. Rejoice, Christian. Let's pray.